Hey friends, and welcome to episode 183 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be continuing on in Genesis 26, and he'll specifically be talking about Isaac and Gerar. This really is a fascinating talk about Isaac, and along the way, he's going to deal with several different themes that come up in the book of Genesis, and in chapter 26 specifically. He'll discuss the theme of thirds, so third day themes, third hour themes, the third well that someone comes to in Genesis. He'll also talk about merit theology and whether that is or is not in the Bible. He'll deal with the theme of righteous deception, things being good to look at in Genesis, and much more. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We are now ready to go in chapter 26, and I actually read the text and comment on it. I think we've introduced it enough times. I've given you a map that shows the lower part of the land of promise. You're basically here, and you've got the Salt Sea here, and the Nile River here, and Gerar is right here. It's on the way to Egypt. If you've got a famine up here, and you're going to head down to Egypt, you're basically going to go through Gerar. So you're stopping there, and on the map you'll see Beersheba is over here, Hebron is up here in this mountainous area. That's where Abraham was when the cities were destroyed and he looked down from the mountain and saw a lot and the smoke going up. And then this whole land was polluted, so he went over to Gerar for a while and then he wound up back at Beersheba. And the famine is going to make Isaac do basically the same thing. So now at least you have an idea. And this wadi here that runs from Gerar toward the Beersheba area is where a lot of the action and the story is going to take place. So we'll talk about what a wadi is, and then we can go on with it. The first paragraph here in chapter 26, verses 1 to 6, is the story of Isaac's moving down in that direction, and I'll read it. Now there was a famine in the land, aside from the former famine that had been in the days of Abraham, Abraham. So Yitzchak went to Avimelech, king of the Philistines, to Gerar. And Yahweh was seen by him, and he said, Do not go down to Egypt. Continue to dwell in the land that I tell you of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will give you blessing. For to you and to your seed I will give all these lands. And I will fulfill the sworn oath that I swore to Abraham your father, to wit. I will make your seed many, like the stars of the heavens, and to your seed will I give all these lands. All the nations of the earth shall enjoy blessing through your seed, in consequence of Abraham's hearkening to my voice. Close quote. And keeping my charge, my commandments and my laws and my instructions. So Yitzchak stayed in Gerar. Now that's your inclusio. Verse 1 says he went to Gerar. Verse 6 says he stayed in Gerar. And what's in the middle there is included there, and that gives us one paragraph. Inclusio. 
added in on it, it's the word inclusion, but we don't want to do that being, you know, scholarly, we have to say, and inclusio, leave the N off. It means it's a parenthesis or a bracket, tells us where the paragraph begins and ends. Kind of like, the two of them were naked and not ashamed, which is unfortunately the last verse of Genesis 2, should be the first verse of chapter 3. The two of them were naked and not ashamed. They realized they were naked and made clothing for themselves. That's your paragraph bracket, which crosses a chapter division and is a mess. Same thing here. Went to Gerar, stayed in Gerar. It says here there was a famine in the land aside from the former famine. This is the second of three famines in Genesis. Three is always a charm. On the third day, important things happen. On the third day, there's a death and resurrection. On the third day, there's a crisis. History changes in the third day, the third hour, the third week, the third month, the third year, the third well, as we'll see in this story, the third famine. The first famine was in Genesis 12, where Abraham went down into Egypt and came up with a lot of spoil. This is the second famine, and the third famine is going to send Israel down into Egypt. So when you're having a famine, you head to Egypt. Now, there's a reason why you go to Egypt if you're having a famine in the promised land. Why would that be? If you're having a famine up here in the promised land, why would you think to go to Egypt? There's food there, and why is there food in Egypt when there's not food up here? Because it's on a different climatological cycle, isn't it? The river in Egypt is not watered by the same climate as this area of Palestine at all. It's totally different. The water in Egypt comes from rains that fall in Central Africa, way down below the equator. Well, near the equator. It's not the same climate system. So you can have a famine up here because of the weather and everything, and it doesn't affect Egypt in the least, because the water that's here has traveled a thousand miles up from Lake Tanganyika and Lake Albert and Lake Victoria and all those places way down in Central Africa up the Blue and White Niles to here. There's only one occasion, isn't there, where there was a famine all over the whole world. And that's in Joseph's day. The famine not only affected Palestine, but it also affected Egypt. And that's kind of like the flood, see. In Genesis, you got a flood that affects the entire world, not just part of it. And here at the end of Genesis, you have this famine that affects the whole world, and not just part of it. So that's a significant shift. But here we're not there yet. We're not going to go all the way down to Egypt. We're going to start to go to Egypt. But we'll be stopped midway. Isaac is on his way to Egypt. First of all, he stops off to see Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Why would he do that? Well, the reason is that his father Abraham had a covenant alliance with the previous Abimelech in Gerar. Back in chapter 20, we read about that. It was all set up. So these people are known. You stop by and say hello, but you're basically on your way to Egypt because that's where there's lots of bread. And the Lord appears to him and says, don't go down to Egypt. Stop here and stay in the land I tell you to. Now, later on, when Jacob starts to go down to Egypt, we have almost exactly the same kind of event. God appears to Jacob in chapter 46, verses 1 to 4, and tells him to go on down to Egypt. Israel, that is his new name, traveled with all that was his and came to Beersheba. When he was at Beersheba, God appears to him 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up. Now, the same thing is said here. I will go with you down to Gerar. He says, don't go down to Egypt. So we're going partly to Egypt. The Philistines are Egyptians. This is the boundary of Egypt, but we're not going all the way in. This is a partial captivity and exodus, but not a full one. Then he says something that you're not going to pick up in English, but would be real obvious to somebody hearing it in Hebrew. He says, sojourn in this land. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for sojourner is? You might know. One of Moses' sons was named a stranger in a strange land. What was his name? Stranger, sojourner. Gershom. In Hebrew, you're going to ger in girar. You're going to be a Gur and Gerar. Gur is a sojourner. So he says sojourn, that's the root word Gur. It's not spelled the same way as Gerar, but it sounds just like it. And see, remember, this was to be read out loud and heard out loud. People didn't read in the ancient world. They remembered what they heard. So you have a rhythm here. You're going to be a Gur in Gerar, which is kind of like a land of sojourning in terms of this pun or sound. And God says, I will be with you and will give you a blessing. And we spent some time a couple of weeks ago looking at how whenever you go into the strange land, God's special presence goes with you. So God's angel goes along with Abraham's servant when he goes to get Rebekah. And the angels meet with Jacob as he leaves the promised land and goes to get his wives. And God says, I will go with you. And the same thing happens when Jesus is incarnated and comes into our Gentile territory. Remember last week we saw the incarnation is the equivalent of this. And when Jesus comes down here, the Holy Spirit comes on him and the angels minister to him while he's here. So when you're in a strange land, God is specially with you. And that's why there's only one set of footprints on the sand, right? Because you're being carried when you're in a strange land. All right, same thing. And then we have a little miniature chiasm here with the word Abraham at the center in verses 3b and 4. And that's important because Abraham's name comes up more times in this chapter than it does in the whole rest of Genesis from here forward. Or about the same number of times. I can't remember exactly. I didn't write it down. This whole stress in this chapter is on Isaac doing what Abraham did and following in Abraham's footsteps, but adding to it. And so Abraham's name keeps coming up here, and his name doesn't keep coming up again and again and again and again later on in the stories. There's a big stress on it here, and Abraham is right at the center of the chiastic structures in this passage. And here's one, verse 3b, he says, I will give you a blessing to you and to your seed. I will give these lands. I will fulfill the oath. And then he says, that I swore to Abraham, and that comes at the center. I will make your seed many like the stars of the heavens. That's the oath, the first main part of it. To your seed I will give these lands. Lands comes up again. And the nations will be blessed. So somebody's being blessed again. So we move from blessing to lands to oath to Abraham. And then the essential content of the oath, the stars of the heavens. And God says, I'll swear by myself, and that is swearing by heaven. So there's a link there to the oath. Give you lands and bless nations. That's the structure. And we're told that this is because Abraham listened to God and guarded his word. Now you can pervert that, and the Jews did. They said that Abraham 
was so righteous that he clocked up a whole bunch of merits and brownie points with God, and Isaac was able to cash in those chips. And now we have, in Roman Catholic theology, the idea of the treasury of merits of the saints. The saints have got all these extra merits, and if you would like to get access to some of those merits so that you don't have to spend as much time in purgatory, how do you do that? Yes, indulgences. You fork out some cash to Tetzel, and you get your indulgences, which cashes in some of the chips that the saints have laid up, and then you don't have to spend as much time in purgatory. And that's what Luther's 95 Theses were all about, this idea of clocking up merits. Well, there's really no merit theology in the Bible. Jesus doesn't earn a bunch of merits that are given to us. Jesus obeys God. And that obedience is given to us. But there's no idea of bargaining with God. Jesus doesn't go to God and say, okay, I did all this stuff, and I'm going to cash it in. Actually, in John 17, he says, I've done everything, and now I'd like to ask you. Petition. The idea of bargaining with God and bringing a gift to a God and cashing it in for something is really a pagan idea. Sometimes Christians, even evangelicals, talk that way. We use this word merit, and it'd be better if we just dropped it out. It's not so much that Jesus merited something as that he matured to fullness of maturity, and that is given to us, not that he clocked up brownie points. And that's not what this means either. It's not that Abraham clocked up a bunch of brownie points, and now they're given to Isaac. He says, I'm going to keep the covenant with you, and part of the reason for it, and the reason is emphasized here, is that Abraham kept the covenant. That's why you get to have it. It's passed to you because Abraham was faithful. Now, you need to be faithful to pass it to your sons. That's the idea. The idea is succession rather than merit somehow. Now you have this odd statement here. It jumps out and all the commentators comment on it. Abraham kept my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my instructions. Or your other Bibles say my statutes and ordinances. And these are the words. These are the words that show up in Exodus and Deuteronomy as various terms for the law. But the law hasn't been given yet. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. There are two or three ways to look at that. One, of course, is to say, well, the Deuteronomist historian, as he edits the book of Genesis from its source documents, has added this in to create the myth that Abraham also kept the laws of Mount Sinai. Because none of this is really history, it's all legend. Well, we don't accept that explanation. Another explanation, and the one that I think is correct, is that Abraham knew God's commandments, maybe not in exactly the specific detail and with all the nuances that are given to us at Mount Sinai, but the essential ones he knew, they knew them. And you'll see in Genesis that some of the things that are not revealed until Mount Sinai were already in practice. Like, for instance, the leveret. If my brother dies without any children, and I'm not married, then I'm supposed to take his wife, and the first child that we have inherits my brother's property. That's the leveret law. Well, that law isn't given until Exodus and Deuteronomy, but it's functioning in Genesis, as we know from Genesis 38. The law of evidences in Exodus 21, where you bring the evidence that an animal has killed somebody 
that functions when Joseph's brothers bring the bloody garment that they have bloodied up. And there are other things that are not written down in written law form until Sinai that obviously were known earlier. And so there's no particular problem with saying that Abraham kept all of these things. He knew them. He knew the essence of the law, whether he had it orally in exactly the same form or not. In fact, I'm sure he didn't. The Sinai law is written in such a way as to, because of the situation at that time with the tabernacle and going into the land. That wasn't Abraham's situation. But the basic laws he had. The question still comes, why is it stressed here? And the reason it's stressed is because this passage is a proleptic, well, let's forget that word. This passage tells the same story as the Exodus down to Mount Sinai and then on to the conquest of the Promised Land. It tells the same story in shadow form. It's typologically prophetic of the later Exodus. We're going to see Mount Sinai in this story, and because of that, Abraham is associated with the law. In the next section, well, the third section of this story is going to put Abraham at the center of the story, which is going to be the equivalent of being at Mount Sinai. So the emphasis on the law is here, I think, for that reason, because we are going to be talking about something that anticipates the whole exodus from Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai. There's one other thing I'd like to mention here. This statement that God's oath to Abraham There's only one place where God swore an oath to Abraham, and that's in chapter 22. God comes and makes covenants with Abraham several times, but he doesn't swear an oath except in chapter 22 after the sacrifice of Isaac. Then it says he swore an oath, and what God says on that occasion is exactly what's said here. And Isaac heard it. So when Isaac is 18 years old or so, and he is with Abraham up on Mount Moriah, And he's almost sacrificed. And then they get the ram and they offer it up. Then God says to Abraham, and since Isaac is there, we can assume he hears it. By myself I swear, this is the only oath, because you have done this thing, because you didn't withhold your son, I will bless you. I will make your seed many, like the stars of the heaven, like the sand that's on the shore. Your seed will inherit the gate of his enemy. All the nations of the earth shall enjoy blessing because you hearken to my voice. Now, just in a slightly condensed form, it's all the same thing here. I'll make your seed many like the stars of the heaven. I'll give all these lands, all the nations of the earth, because Abraham hearkened to my voice. Earlier, it's because you hearkened to my voice. Because you were willing to give up your son, I'm going to give you all this stuff. Now, Isaac is reminded of that. God swore this oath to Abraham. You remember, Isaac. You were there. You heard it. 40 years ago, let me remind you of it, because Abraham was willing to give up his son because of the way he lived his life, I am going to give all this to you. And if you want your sons to have it, you need to live the same kind of life Abraham did. Now, I think this is significant because of the context. The next thing that happens is, Isaac goes down into Gerar and he figures that these men, since they're not in the covenant, they're not really trustworthy, they may attack his wife, and so he does exactly what Abraham did. Now, I think God has just finished telling him to do that. I think God has just finished telling him, hey, look, Abraham was a righteous man. 
I'm blessing you because of him. You get into a situation like Abraham was in, do what Abraham did. Wasn't anything wrong with it. Abraham deceived Pharaoh about Sarah and came out with a lot of blessing and Pharaoh got plagued. He deceived Abimelech about Sarah and Abraham came out with a bunch of blessings and Abimelech got plagues. So Isaac, remember Abraham. He is worthy of imitation. And Isaac is here in the same situation, so he does the same thing. He deceives Abimelech about his wife. Partial deception. Tells him no more than Abimelech needs to know. So we'll move to that, the second part of the story about beautiful woman. This is in verses 7 to 11, and this also has general structure having as its center the theme of death. Let me read it to you. Verses 7 to 11, we now come into Gerar. God has told us we can go there, reminded us to look at Abraham and kind of do like he did. So here we are. Now, when the men of that place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say, My wife. Otherwise, and it says in parenthesis, thinking, and that's correct. The exegetes have shown that often... When you have two statements in a row, the second one is the thoughts. He says, my sister, and then the second thing, otherwise the people of this place will kill me on account of Rivka, for she is beautiful to look at. The idea of death is here. Now, it ends the same way. Abimelech commanded the entire people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife being put to death, he must be put to death. So first of all, Isaac is afraid that they'll kill him. Verse 8. But it came to pass, when he'd been there a long time, that Avimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, there was Isaac, Isaacing with Rivka, his wife. That's what it literally says. Avimelech, my daddy is the king, had Yitzchak called and said, But behold, she must be your wife. And now how could you say she is my sister? And Yitzchak said to him, Indeed, I said to myself, Otherwise I will die on account of her. And Avimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might well have lain with your wife, and then you would have brought guilt upon us. And Avimelech commanded the entire people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife, being put to death, he must be put to death. Dying you shall die. He must be put to death, yes, death. Emphasis. So we move from death in verse 7, to sexuality in verse 8, an accusation in verse 9a, and then Isaac's response is, I was afraid I'd die. Death is at the center. Another accusation in verse 10, this is all your fault. Verse 10b, somebody might have had sex with your wife, and then finally, anybody who messes with you all is going to be put to death. So that's the way the passage is structured. Death winds up being the theme. Fear of death. And that's what we'll have to come to. But we won't get there right away. First of all, we got to talk about the cute babe or beautiful woman in English. Chapter 24, verse 16 has already told us that Rebecca was beautiful. 24, verse 16. I want to read it because it's exactly the same. The maiden was exceedingly beautiful to look at. And here it says, she is beautiful to look at. Why do you suppose it says, to look at? It could just say she is beautiful. It emphasizes looking at her. 
Well, yeah, but I want something out of Genesis in terms of a theme. Well, we'll get there. I just, now you, you had it. Aha, looking at the forbidden fruit, that's right. The fruit was good to look at. A delight to the eyes. And you find this repeated through here. Exactly right. Remember, Adam was supposed to guard the garden, and who's in the garden? Eve. And she's beautiful to look at. She's not off limits to Adam. This is another forbidden fruit situation, and that's why we get this statement, dying you shall die, where there's a lot of garden motifs here. But let's ask another question. Here he comes, Isaac comes with his sheikdom, and he comes with his wife, and there are two guys there, Jacob and Esau, and it seems like it would be pretty obvious that they're husband and wife if they've got two little boys with them. So maybe they're not little boys anymore. If this is in chronological order, they're not, because we've already read about Jacob and Esau doing this deal with the red porridge, the mess of pottage, the lentils. So they're probably older. My guess is they were old enough to have their own situation, and they just didn't hang around Isaac and Rebecca in such a way. In other words, they were in on this deception. So they would have been regarded as part of the sheikdom. Remember, Isaac's got lots of servants. There's a lot of people here. He is responsible for several hundred people at least who are with him down in this Gerar situation. He's got to protect them, which means he's got to stay alive. And that's part of what the commentators overlook when they criticize him for what he did. Chapter 25, verses 20 and 26 tell us that the boys were born 20 years into the marriage. Rebecca is probably about 20 years younger than Isaac. I mean, if she had not yet gotten married and she was beautiful when Abraham's servant went to get her, she probably wasn't any older than 20 at the most. I mean, a beautiful-looking girl is going to be bargained for and married off at a fairly young age. So we'll be generous and say that Rebecca, who was gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous, was all the way to 20 years old when she got married to Isaac, and Isaac was 40 when they got married. Isaac was 60 when the sons were born, which was 20 years after the marriage, so Rebecca was about 40. If the boys are grown up, Rebecca's about 60 to 65 years old, and it says that she's drop-dead beautiful to look at, but that's not a surprise. When Sarah was 66 or 67 years old in Genesis 12, it says she was so beautiful the Egyptians couldn't keep their hands off of her. That's in Genesis 12, 11, 14, 15. You read it. Abraham says, oh man, you are such a knockout. I'm afraid of what will happen, so tell him you're my sister. They go down there. It says the Egyptians all marveled at Sarah's beauty, and Pharaoh grabbed her and took her into his harem. Whether he did anything with her, we don't know. Probably not, because God acted to plague him, but he grabbed her and took her in. Maybe it was like Esther took her into the harem and then there were six months of milk baths and six months of perfumes and all that. <laughs> Don't know how they did things. In chapter 20, verse 2, when Abraham went to Gerar, Sarah was 89 years old and Abimelech grabbed her and took her into his harem. Doesn't say she's beautiful. But considering how long these people lived, apparently they 
didn't start getting old and wrinkly until they were around, you know, 130, 140, 150 years old. So they could still be beautiful. Also, we have to remember, this was not 1980. Social x-rays is what Tom Wolfe called the ideal of beauty in modern America. A woman as thin as a twig and 16 years old looking. Boys with breasts is what he calls them in his newer book. That's an improvement on what he called. Well, the ideal of beauty historically has not been 16-year-old girl. They're real super skinny and... And they had the beauty of middle age, not the beauty of adolescence. This is not to say what people have to think is beautiful one way or the other. I'm just trying to break us out of our context and say, it's really no surprise that a woman in middle age would be thought beautiful in some other culture. In our culture, all the middle-aged women want to look like they're 18 years old. So we're not in the context where we can understand this, huh? No, they didn't wear veils. This business of covering women up with veils is Muslim. Rebecca didn't put a veil on until just before she got married. And she put it on for the same reason women wear veils in wedding ceremonies today. So that it could be ceremonially taken off. That's not even done much anymore, but it used to be. But no, they didn't wear veils. Oh, I've mentioned the garden theme. The fruit is a delight to the eyes, but it's forbidden without permission from the Lord of the garden. And the Lord of the garden on this occasion is Isaac, and Isaac is the one they'll have to talk to if they want to get to Rebecca. That's the nice thing about this arrangement. Now, what about this business of women? There seems to be this fear in Genesis that because your wife is beautiful, they're going to kill you and take your wife. And that may seem a little bit odd to us because we don't usually see that kind of thing happening. We see a lot of adultery in our society, but the business of just grabbing a woman and carrying her off and stealing her or killing somebody to get her, we don't see it because of our culture, which is nice. But there's a great story in the ancient world all about that, and you know what it is. It's the Iliad. Helen of Troy, well, Helen of Macedonia, is taken off by Paris. And she wasn't 18 years old either. Helen already had children, but she got tired of her husband, and she went off with Paris to Troy. So let's make her about 30 years of age when she's so beautiful that she's carried off. And then you have a whole war about it. Menelaus, who's her husband, happens to be the brother of the high king, so he goes and complains to Agamemnon, who's the high king, and says... I don't like what was done to me. And so Agamemnon calls all the other kings of the Greek city-states of the Aegean of the... Well, they're not Greeks, but they're proto-Greeks. I can't remember the right word now. It's evaporated. It'll come. And they all go off to fight Troy. And that takes 20 years. And at the end of this, Helen's still beautiful. She may be fading a bit. But she had to face and launch a thousand ships. That's one Helen of beauty launches a thousand ships. A mini Helen is the amount of beauty it takes to launch one ship. And I guess a centi Helen can launch ten ships. A milli Helen launches one ship. Well, Homer's skill, of course, if you've read the Iliad, and most people have at least skimmed it at some point in their lives, you probably don't remember this, but the first thing that happens in Homer's Iliad is you find Agamemnon 
has got this cute young girl that he's stolen. And the girl's father comes and says, please give her back. And the father is a priest of Apollo. And Agamemnon says, I like her. She is really beautiful. And I like what she does at night. And I'm not giving her back. And he says, look, I'm bringing you all these gifts. The father does. Please give my daughter back to me. And Agamemnon says no. So the father goes and he prays to the god Apollo. And Apollo strikes the Greeks with all these plagues. Agamemnon then has to give her back to her father. And he says, all right, I'm the high king and the commander in chief. But I don't get to have a cuddly girl at night. I'll take somebody else's. So whose girl does he take? He takes Achilles, honey, which is a girl named Brisice which Achilles has grabbed along the way because she was beautiful. And Agamemnon takes her, and Achilles gets mad, he sulks in his tent, and that's what the whole book of the Aeneid is about. Achilles refuses to fight, and he's the great hero. When he doesn't fight, the Greeks are losing. And then the action of the Iliad goes from there. Now, Homer's skill, you see, is to say, hey, these Trojans stole this woman, and you're out to punish them, but look at you, you do exactly the same things. All of you do. You've offended the gods, by stealing women and refusing to give them back. What this, though, tells us for our purposes is setting aside Homer's skill in saying the Trojans and the Greeks were both equally guilty of this kind of rapine behavior. It shows us what the ancient world was like. If there was some dishy girl out there, maybe you'd just kill her dad and take her. Or kill her husband and take her. Or snatch her up and take her back home. kind of thing went on. And so it's not so strange that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these people are thinking, we've got to be careful. Because they were in a culture where this kind of thing went on. And that's why I mentioned that. It adds cultural context to this. It's not so strange for these men to think, gosh, they might kill me and steal my wife because she's good looking. Men did that kind of thing back then. Now he says, she's my sister. Is this true or false? I read commentaries that say it's false, but they've missed something. And we saw this in chapter 24, verses 53, 55, 59, and 60. We saw that the entire marriage contract that took place was a sister contract. You negotiate with Laban, Rebecca's brother. When they send her away, they say, May you, our sister, find prosperity. He adopts her as his sister at the time he marries her as his wife. In fact, he adopts her as sister before he marries her as wife. Sarah really was Abraham's sister. Rebecca is sister by legal covenant and contract. So there's no lie here. It's just he doesn't tell all the truth. And why should he? Just because somebody asks me a question doesn't mean that I have to tell them everything. If somebody says, what did you have for dinner last night? And I say, I had hamburger. I'm not lying if I fail to mention that I also had french fries. You come back later on and say, you told me you had hamburger and you didn't tell me you had french fries. You deceived me. If I had known you had french fries, that would have changed everything. That's not a lie. Especially when you're dealing with a tyrant. You tell as little as possible. How do you fill out your income tax? You tell them as little as possible. Why? Because you're dealing with a tyrant. You tell them as little as possible. And there's nothing immoral about that. It's just plain old common sense. Yeah, when you're being examined by... Oh, I tell you what. 
I know that the rule when you're examined by Presbytery is give them the answers that are in the Shorter Catechism. Don't be creative. That's not the time to show your creativity. It's the time to show your orthodoxy. And so you don't... uh Uh-huh. It wasn't necessary, but it was what was done. And the sister wife has a higher status than an ordinary wife. In the Song of Solomon, it's my sister, my bride. From what I understand, it was fairly widely practiced. He gave the woman a higher status. The brother is the primary guardian of the sister in the Bible. In Canticles chapter 8, verse 8 and 9, you remember the brothers say, we have a little sister and she's now blossoming, and if she's a door, in other words, if she's kind of tractable type girl, then we'll stand and protect her. But if she's a wall, well, then we'll praise her. We don't need to protect her. The brothers are the protector of the sister. Absalom is that way toward his sister. When Tamar is raped by Amnon, Absalom is the one who steps in because he is the brother protector. In Genesis chapter 34, which is the story that's parallel to the one we're in right now in terms of the structure, we'll find it's the brothers who deal with Hamor. When Shechem ravishes Dinah, it's the brothers that they negotiate with. I've got the verses here, chapter 34, 7 and 8, and then 13 and 25, you'll find that the men of Shechem come and they deal with Jacob's sons. And it's Jacob's sons who make up the arrangement with them. It's the brothers of Dinah, and particularly her blood brothers, Simeon and Levi, because Dinah was the daughter of Leah, and Simeon and Levi are sons of Leah. Her blood brothers are the ones who take action. They take the wrong action. Brothers are guardians of sisters in the Bible, and it's a common thing in any culture. The father, of course, is there. Other people are there. But the primary guardian is going to be the brother. Now, what's different about this story, what the Abraham story is, that the two Abraham stories, in both cases, the tyrant did seize the woman. Abram comes and says, she's my sister. If you're interested in her, talk to me. Pharaoh doesn't do that, he grabs her. Abimelech doesn't do that, he grabs her. In this case, they do. It says, the men asked about his wife. He says, she's my sister. They come to Isaac and say, hey, who's this woman with you? He says, oh, she's my sister. Oh, really? What's your price? Well, there's this guy up in Damascus that she's betrothed to, and, and he hasn't been able to get the entire bride price together yet, but I, there's not much to be done about it. Sorry, guys. Oh, well, well, if that falls through, let us know, because we think she's really cute, and we'd like to take her out and show her a good time. But, okay. They respect his brotherly guardian activity. But he had no way of knowing that going in. And you see, it works. It works for him on this occasion to say sister and not wife. He doesn't say she's not my wife. He just says she's my sister and doesn't tell him anything else. So technically speaking, no lying takes place. There is a deception, but so what? To make this out to be a sin, you really have to strain it in that and swallow a camel. Now... What is said is, Isaac is afraid, and he shouldn't have been afraid, he should have trusted the Lord. Well, this is sort of the, do you trust the Lord, or do you trust the Lord and keep your powder dry question. I think that we understand that you trust the Lord and keep your powder dry. Trusting the Lord does not mean that you sit on your hands and don't do anything and wait for manna to drop out of heaven. You have to do things while you trust God. 
And there's no evidence that Isaac has any lack of faith in God. He's just being practical because of the situation he's in. It says he's afraid. He was afraid of the situation. Well, is it wrong? Well, in the first place, I think we have to notice that God has just reminded him about Abraham. Twice Abraham did this. On neither occasion is Abraham condemned by God. On both occasions, Abraham is blessed by God. Now, that would seem to be an object lesson to Isaac. In the same situation, look back at Abraham. This is what he did. It proved difficult, but hey, he came out with a lot of blessing and it worked out well. If I were Isaac and God had just reminded me of Abraham, I think I would learn from that. Go and do likewise. Second of all, in the light of verse 10b, Isaac's fear is well grounded. Abimelech says, hey, one of the people might well have raped your wife. Then you to brought guilt on us. That's a preposterous charge, but it seems that this was kind of a loose place. And so Isaac had reason to take measures. So I don't think his fear was sinful, and I don't think it was unwise. God is just expecting him to exercise wisdom in this situation. And he imitates Abram in doing so. Well, verse 8. It came to pass when he'd been there a long time, and this takes us into the future, I think, and makes this story parallel to the next one we read, which we won't get to until next week, where Isaac digs all these wells, and after a while the Philistines come and they say, go away. Now that's after a long time. And that's parallel to this. So I think that part of the context here, when you take it all, is that Abimelech and the other Philistines have started getting kind of used up with Isaac because he's become so prosperous, they're becoming envious of him. We're told that. And so it looks as if Abimelech was spying on him. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window, and behold, there was Isaac laughing and loving, it says here, sporting, it says in the King James. Isaacing is what it says in Hebrew, Yitzchak Metzachek, with Rivkai's wife. What were they doing? We don't know. But they were doing something that only a husband and wife would tend to do. Abimelech is looking says looks out through a window. Were they outside or were they inside and he was looking through to them? Was he spying on them? Earlier in the Bible we've had Ham going into the privacy of Noah's tent, spying out a situation that was none of his business. My guess is if I'm trying to reconstruct the situation here is that Abimelech has already become a little bit tired of Isaac and his prosperity and he's spying on them. But you can't know for sure. We're not told that much. Isaac's defense in verse 9, we have this abbreviated conversation. Abimelech had Isaac called and said, look, she must be your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said, because I said to myself, otherwise I'll die on account of her. Well, there's a lot more he could have said and probably did. We don't have full conversations in the Bible. We just have the essence of it. The only thing that's mentioned, though, is his fear of death. And there's some things that we ought to think about here just as we close. We can close off this section. In chapter 12, when Abraham is faced with this situation, and Pharaoh grabs Sarah, and before he does, Abraham's trying to protect her, God had come to him and told him that he was going to have this seed and that the Messiah would come through him and the nations would be blessed. 
Well, that hadn't happened yet. So Abraham has got to protect himself and his wife so that they can have the Messianic seed. Now in chapter 20, that's way in the background. That's not emphasized in chapter 12, but it's there. In chapter 20, it's in the foreground. God comes and says, next year, 12 months from now, you're going to have a child named Isaac. The next month, Abraham is in Gerar, and he tries to protect his wife. And Abimelech seizes his wife, and God closes up all the wombs of the women there, and saves Sarah so that she can have a child. The threat is against the birth of the seed. But now in chapter 26, the sons are already born. And so we're not protecting the seed in the future directly. This story has a somewhat different cast. Nor does he say, I did it to protect my wife. The language is the same as in chapter 12. The language that Isaac uses is the same as Abraham used in chapter 12. To save me. They will want to kill me, says Abraham. So tell them you're my sister to protect me. And Isaac says, I was protecting myself. Now, is that selfish or sinful? Well, no. It is not a sin to protect yourself, especially when you're the guardian of others. Both Abraham and Isaac had all these people they were supposed to protect. If Isaac gets killed, what happens to Rebekah? Well, that's it for her. What happened to Isaac and Jacob? They're not protected. What happened to all these other people in the Sheikdom? They're not protected. So for him to say, I need to protect myself, you can't read into that, as I'm afraid too many tend to do, some type of self-centeredness here. That's not the context. In fact, it's covenant responsibility. He's the guardian of all these other people, so he's got to protect himself, and that is assumed in context, I submit. Well, Abimelech makes this accusation. What did you do to us? We didn't do anything to him. He told him he'd had a hamburger and didn't mention the french fries. He told him that Jesus' sister, how is that anything? You did this to us. One of the people might have Clintonized your wife. And then you would have brought guilt on us. Well, he as much as admits he's got a whole nation of Bill Clintons here. But it would have been your fault if one of the men had grabbed your wife. How is this? This is a ridiculous charge on the face of it. But it's very common. Well, what does Ahab say to Elijah? You're the one who's the trouble of Israel. It's your fault. What does Herod say to John the Baptist? It's your fault. You're the one troubling Israel. And this is what happens every time. Pharaoh goes to Abraham and says, this is all your fault. Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, this is all your fault. Because you didn't tell me she was your wife. You just said she was your sister. It's your fault that these bad things came on us. Laban comes out after Jacob, as we'll see. What does Laban say? He says, this is all your fault. He says, your wives are my daughters. They're still mine. And all these sheep out here, all these spotted and speckled and striped and candy-colored sheep out here, they're mine. It's all mine. And it's all your fault that you got rich and you stole all this stuff from me. Well, no, it isn't. All of these things have been contracted for. But what does Laban say? It's your fault. You're the one who is in sin. That's ridiculous. It's how the wicked act. So get used to it. Because when you do the things that are right and things turn out bad for the wicked, they'll blame you. And that's exactly what happens here. We ought not to be taking Abimelech's side. Well, Abimelech sees the point. 
And he puts up the garden rules. Anybody who touches this man or his wife dying, he shall die. He acts as the garden head and puts a boundary around them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.